0: Well, good afternoon to everybody on the uh, webinar this afternoon. Thank you so much for joining. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by uh, Bruce Robinson, who's uh, an expert in uh, private uh, sector with an amazing background of many decades of experience in the uh, private market. So, we're we'll joining you shortly. Um, Bruce shortly rather. Um, What I wanted to do is just give those others uh, an introduction to who we are at Device Access. We're a market access um, consultancy. Uh, We've been around for 10 years. We've celebrated 10 years this year. And what we do is we help to get great technologies to patients faster. And part of that is around understanding what happens in our healthcare system, uh, the NHS. And and we've been having, uh, we've been fortunate enough to have had access to the NHS um, hospital database to understand how patients are treated today and the impacts they have into the healthcare system. Um, we've been looking very, very closely at what's been going on with the uh, waiting list uh, within um, NHS England, particularly in, in, in the light of, of COVID. Um, and we do have access to um, waiting lists by specialty, um, by provider, um, and we also have uh, waiting list, uh, access to waiting lists by um, cancer uh, types and treatments as well. So um, so we're, we're very fortunate to be able to look behind at what's happened in the past in the NHS in England and also understand the pressures, the enormous pressures that the NHS are under, um, particularly now with the ever increasing growing waiting lists for, um, uh, in the light of, of covid so, um, so we have access to that, and what we we're able to do, we have an outstanding group of um, health economists uh, on the team who, some of them have been uh, past evidence review group members at Nice, and um, and what we're able to do is publish evidence to show the cost effectiveness of medical devices uh, to support Nice um, uh, 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 reviews and and submissions. Uh, there's a number you'll see on the screen here. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're really good at getting publications out, which is of the standard that uh, NICE and other payers globally are looking for. So we build global models and are able to publish them in journals. So without any uh, more hesitation, um, I'm here with Bruce. He's also um, a consultant to Device Access, uh, helping us with uh, many uh, projects over the past uh, few years. Actually, Bruce, thank you for coming to Device Access. Thank you for inviting me. So Bruce, uh you've got a fascinating background and I know that you uh you came to uh this uh this world in a in a very interesting way having started in the veterinary market, insured market.
1: Yes. Um, I did. I have uh, probably been in healthcare and highly regulated um, healthcare businesses for my entire career, maybe forty years. I started out um in a veterinary pharmaceutical company and ended up being managing director of that company um, and helped them develop propositions and joint ventures all over the world and went out to India and China in the days when very few people had been out there to look at um, health programs which would enable increased protein production uh, in food-producing animals out there came back uh, and decided I really was a bit more of an entrepreneur. So I was the first person to invest in um, uh, incorporated veterinary practices. So it was very trendy to incorporate dentists and accountancy firms as limited companies. I went to the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons and said, is there any reason why I can't create exactly the same model? And so I was the founder and put the first pound in company's house for CVS Group. So that was a very exciting time, Um, raised uh, millions in the city to develop that and the largest veterinary incorporator today. Um, I had a slight shift in direction uh, for one reason or another and came into human health And joined Bupa as it was before they um, sold off their hospitals Uh, and I became managing director of the Bupa wellness business, the Bupa occupational health business, uh, Bupa outcome technologies, all of the Bupa pathology and also psychological services which is a very interesting sector at the moment so we acquired a large large, uh, psychological services business and uh, At the time that Bupa decided to sell off their hospitals division, I was part of the hospitals division, but I remained uh, in those divisions and the uh, Bupa hospitals were sold off. And I was part of that process in terms of doing the due diligence and selling off the hospitals, but I, I, I remained as the managing director of those other businesses I've just talked about.
0: Well, that's amazing, Bruce. I think um, what an incredible background to go from animals into humans, and uh, and I know you've worked. Um, we will talk more about this in detail. About um, you know, we, we've got uh, you know an incredible um, private sector market that many medtech companies have have looked at, and and they see sometimes a follow of their products use in the general hospitals into the local private hospitals as well, and and as I did when I was um, running uh, you know many many businesses, but in in, in, uh, in particular Venus Medical Technologies UK, when we saw um, an uptake, instant uptake of patients uh, being treated with venous closure for the varicose veins in the local private hospitals almost instantly. And, and in fact, I, I recall selling uh, machines to doctors um, who were buying them without, with, with their own money to, to take them into the private sector and offer their their, their clinical and equipment to treat patients, so it's a very interesting area. Um, Bruce, background into the private sector. Where do we start? I mean, who are the main players, and and who are the big players? Who who are the big big movers and shakers in the private sector in terms of the providers?
1: Well, I think I think it's important to recognise the private sector is is a is a is a large market. Uh, it's a multi billion pound market. And understanding the providers and the payers is no different than any other market.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, And in terms of providers, there are probably five key hospital, independent hospital groups that are the key providers in that market. And I've actually worked in most of them. So I've worked with in either as an interim, helping them run hospitals efficiently or as a lead director. So I've worked within the BMI group, which is one of the largest Uh, They've just been acquired by Circle, which is a very interesting um, shift in terms of ownership and investors. I've worked uh, as a regional director within the uh, Nuffield, which is a very interesting group, Nuffield Health, at the time when they decided to change their strategy to not only look at uh, elective surgery in hospitals, but also um, move into gyms and the preventative health propositions. Um, so they're the two two of the biggest, obviously Spire, I've worked within that group because that used to be the Booper group and I never actually worked for Spire, they're one of the largest, and HCA, a large player in the London market, and then you have others like Ramsey, and also a number of new entrants in the market that we're seeing in London, the Schoen Clinic, Cleveland Clinic coming on board, and, you know, other players in the market. I think the other one not to ignore, and very much in the uh, London arena, is the, uh, the increase in private patient units that are being offered by trusts, where typically there used to be a cap on how much private work the NHS trusts could do, that cap was removed. And now they can um, do anything up to 49% of their revenue through private patients. And there's quite a a demand for that. Typically, the structure of these uh, providers, uh, you know, they they don't have that many operating theatres. You know, quite a lot of them will be two to three operating theatres. One of them will be laminar flow. Some of the larger groups may have five, may have eight. Um, and the service proposition that they're offering varies enormously. So when you're looking at the private healthcare market, it's very important to segment it into the area that you uh, need to focus into. And each of these hospital groups, as an overall proposition, they probably cover most things. But some of them will have invested in having a critical care unit. Some of them will be developing propositions which are include paediatrics some of them will be specializing in oncology some of them will be looking at uh, ophthalmics there's there's all sorts but generally a lot of these hospitals their bread and butter comes from orthopedics general surgery ophthalmology but it's very important whenever you're looking at accessing the market and the provider market to understand the strategy of the individual group so i can remember when i was at one of the groups will be nameless now but you know we had a strategy of making sure that we were aligned to the trusts the tertiary trusts where they were operating because if you were having consultants that were doing private practice you know generally the specialists would be working in the trusts right next to your, your hospital. Absolutely. So, orthopedics is, is a very important uh, part of that market. Uh, and I think y- you can see lots of reports on what is the size of the market, but you really un- need to understand how it's made up. And in the acute independent m- uh, hospitals market, typically the propositions that are being offered are inpatient. Day case and outpatient and with all the diagnostics and and as with the NHS, there is a tendency of uh, work to be moving from inpatient to day case to outpatient.
0: okay that's uh, that's very helpful um, Bruce so um, so obviously we know there's these providers we've got uh, BMI, uh, we've got um, uh, Nuffield health, spire, Hda, Ramsey. Uh, and you, you mentioned these other ones, the the Cleveland Clinic and, and the Shern Scho- group, which is uh, which is really fascinating. Um, you know, in my time of running around in sales for twenty odd years, I was, um, you know, it was basically Booper and Ramsey and BMI. Um, which so the, in terms of size of hospital groups. Um, and in terms of highest volume of, of of hospitals within those providers, um, Bruce, which which are the biggest? Is so, does BMI B M I the most
1: B M I is the biggest in terms of the number of um, beds and hospitals. I right. would have thought. I have got the exact figures. Spire would closely follow that. Um, in, in term, but if you were looking at markets, you know, you need to also be thinking about operating theatres and you know the 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 specific markets most of private a lot of private capacity is delivered out of london the south and the southeast and you know hca are obviously the biggest player in london even though if you were to look at them uh, on a national basis i think they just have one joint venture operation outside of london in manchester and and um with the christie so you know, when you're targeting your entry strategy, you need to be thinking quite carefully about which provider you might go to um, and, and how you would send your message about, um, you know, the title of this, this webinar is, you know, how to accelerate your proposition. And, um, you know, I've, as I say, worked for three, either in an interim capacity or as a chief executive of of some of these hospitals. Uh, There's a lot of learnings that people need to realize in terms of how to get into the private sector. The standard sort of safety, efficacy and quality are equally as important, but understanding the structure of governance within the providers at a local level is very, very important.
0: Well, that's uh, that sounds like a lot of uh, work to do to try and understand um, what is really happening in the private sector. And I must admit, my my work in sales over the years um, in, in engaging with the private hospitals were generally with the with the clinician and the theatre manager. But I know things have changed. Um, and we'll talk about the, the the fact that these private hospitals are, you know, they provide care to NHS patients, to the self pay, and also to the insured pay. They're the three sort of distinct um, care they provide to those types of patients. But going back to the providers, are there any that you think are more, let's say, up for new innovation and new technologies and others? Are there some that are more concerned about price than others, or are they all generally the same when it comes to you know, local discussions about the introduction of, let's say, a new medical device? Are there any that are easier that you think to deal with than others that you can think about um, the way they're governed?
1: Right. I I would say no. I I would say one of the things that's driving all uh, private hospitals now, as much as uh, getting a return on any investment, which is becoming difficult during the COVID uh, times, is the Care Quality Commission and how the regulation has changed over the years. So within the Care Quality Commission, the regulator, they do look at... um, key lines of inquiry and in those key lines of inquiry they will rank those hospitals as outstanding or good or requires improvement. One of the key links to a hospital attaining an outstanding classification is innovation and that comes under the well-led category. So if hospital directors and the leadership teams can demonstrate that they are developing innovative um, processes or patient pathways or devices uh, which assist the patient journey, make it better, um, then that is, is very important. And also demonstrating outcomes is very important. So even if there's not a standard outcome measure, If you're looking at something new, as an executive director or the leadership team, you can actually do your own patient satisfaction surveys in relation to certain specialities, and then use that evidence when you follow up to help support the review that will happen in your hospital, which will then lead you on to um, potentially having a higher score from the assessment from the Care Quality Commission. And that's in the two areas, one of efficacy, and one of well-led. And I found very much when I was running a particular hospital that if I could specialise and really delve into why we needed new technology or how were we looking at new technology uh, and demonstrate that to inspectors, they generally ticked that box um, as uh, somebody who was leading the organisation well. And interestingly, in the scripts for all the inspectors for the CQC, they have the questions which are directly related to innovation and new developments. So making sure that you can populate that box when they ask you the question is very important. I wouldn't say there's any difference in the hospitals in terms of their appetite for new technology. I think there is a difference in the appetite of different executive directors at different hospitals and also how difficult it is to get it through because of the lack of understanding as to what's required. And there is a big difference between different groups in terms of how decentralised and centralised the decision-making processes are. But there generally is a standard approach in most private hospitals which is in terms of clinical, new clinical developments, which relates to what's called the Medical Advisory Committee. And the Medical Advisory Committee is a group of clinicians who are not employed, who basically provide advice and guidance on new procedures, new technologies. And that committee has a chairman and that committee meets typically once a quarter, and gives advice to the executive uh, leadership team on things such as this. And in many cases, that committee will ask the usual questions that you would expect to be asked about safety, about quality, about efficacy. But, you know, some people think you always have to have a nice approval prior to presenting something to that committee what that committee will do is provide the executive team with the rationale for yes we think this is interesting somebody in the trust is using that product or that that service or that new treatment or that new diagnostic Um, then then the more challenging questions come in terms of is is this of any benefit to me in terms of differentiating my strategy from my local private provider or is there a return on the capital that's going to be invested, if it's a capital investment or is it a consumable? And then to some extent, that then leads on to the next big part of the private sector equation, which is the funding sources. So there are three and and it's changed radically. So, there's, so obviously, there's the PMI, private medical insurance market, which Everybody sort of knows is around 10 or 12% of the population. So, so, you know, you're looking at 6 or 7 million people, depending on who who you're talking to. That will be impacted, obviously, largely by the corporates, you know, how successful the corporates are doing. And during these times, it'll be very interesting to see the impact of um, uh, membership of PMI schemes for a corporate and for the self-pay
0: PMI schemes. So that when you say your PMI, meaning private medical insurance, um, and, and the corporates, you're referring really and making sure that people understand uh, the terminology here, because I'm learning a lot of new things, Bruce. It's been amazing so far. Um, it, you, you know, we're talking about the the, the people like AXA, um, uh, PPP, etc. The the actual yeah. when you say corporates, you so mean the corporate insured? Yeah. Providers. So
1: I'm, I don't actually. So, so so effectively, the corporates, I mean, our companies. Large companies will offer a private medical insurance benefit to their employees so they make up the large proportion and those insurers are the ones that you mentioned so the two big ones are axa ppp and bupa so they cover the majority of insurance claims in the uk and then you've got aviva and vitality and then you've got a number of others but When you're looking to um, effectively have your member reimbursed or the provider to be reimbursed by one of those insurers, you have to convince those insurers that it's worth paying for. So a lot of the insurers will say, No, if you're if this is a new development or a new technology, we're not going to reimburse you until we understand it. So there is a process uh, that new technologies go through to effectively get a code, um, this kind of clinical classification, where all the insurers get together and assess new products, procedures, diagnostics, and then they give a CCSD code which is quite different really from the NHS, where you might have an HRG four plus code, which is influenced by comorbidities. It might be influenced by the market forces factor as to what part of the country you're in. This committee doesn't do that. This has been going on for a long time and has representatives from the major um, insurers and even when you get the CCSD code, there is no guarantee that that insurance company will actually fund or reimburse you as a provider. So uh, further discussions have to then be had with those insurers around uh, the reason why. And a really good example of this, Michael, when we first met, or not first met, um, uh, device access came to see me in one of the hospitals I was working at to look at the um, uh, a new product for benign prostate hyperplasia. And uh, I can remember asking some quite challenging questions of Mike around, well, you may be developing this for the NHS, but I'm absolutely telling you now, if you can't um, tick these boxes for me, um, <coughs> we won't be using it in, 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 in our hospital. But we started using that. They'd done their research very well, and we managed to tick all the boxes. I went away as the chief executive and understood uh, all the questions, managed to get them into a format where I could present that to the MAC, the Medical Advisory Chair Group, and we started using the product in advance of it having any nice approval. Uh, But we had done our work very carefully on what price – what margin, what return on capital. And even as an individual uh, chief executive of a very large hospital, I, would, I still had to, in effect, go through the processes of getting that approved centrally. And most of these big groups that I've talked about here also have a medical director that sits centrally and they will have their own medical advisory board and prior to you introducing anything locally, even if you haven't had it approved, you will then have to p- potentially present a business case. And that's that's in order to either get the capital that's required or to get the procurement team, which most procurements are now centralised in the big organisations. And in order for you to get a catalogue code, which allows you to buy it locally You have to get that approved centrally. So there are some hurdles and challenges of getting something approved. But once you've got it approved and you've done your business case and you've put your volumes in, um, it's, uh, it's quite easy thereafter. And then, of course, you want to try and be able to demonstrate the return on the business case that you presented.
0: Well, I think it sounds like a, it sounds to me like you know. Obviously, we we have supported over forty companies through Nice now. But it sounds to me, Bruce, that the private sectors have their own sort of mini Nice committees uh, centrally, uh, with with the um, with the with the insurance companies as well, and and also the local, what you call the medical advisory committee, as well. So it's it's fascinating stuff, and. Um, i know that uh, you know bruce is able to 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 help us uh, through through device access uh, to, to to listeners interested in understanding um how to put the business cases forward and how to engage with the the private uh, payers and providers um to to help uh, to get things approved so we're here to help um but i just wanted to go in a bit more background here because it's um yeah, it's all, it's all come back to me, this, this opportunity of, you know, six or seven million people have, have got private insured. Um, then you've got your self-pay um, market. I mean, how big is that, Bruce? I mean, I know there's lots of places in London and we hear how the uh, tra- travel and you know, health, transport, tra- health industry has been affected by people not being able to fly in to have treatments in London, for example. But how, how sort of big is the self-pay market? So again, I think it's
1: dangerous to be too generalist on the self-pay market. I think people would tell you that across the whole sector, it's somewhere between 10 and 15% of revenues, maybe that sort of level. And typically, people used to think of self-pay as the cosmetic sort of business, you know, that, that sort of area. But the market is also distorted in terms of how you define the market. So I'll give you an example of what a crazy world we live in. Um, Outside of London, the uh, overall, and it's quite important to uh, present this in in the context of the PMI as well, the, the consultants that work within hospitals work there with practicing privileges. And consultants outside of London generally when you have practicing privileges, they make their claims from the private medical insurance companies directly. So that wouldn't be considered market revenue for the hospitals. That's just a different source of revenue that goes directly to the consultants. Now, in the self-pay market, typically, when a patient goes in and says, I would like to have this particular procedure, quite often, the consultant quotes for the whole price. So it's not split between a hospital fee and an anaesthetist fee and a consultant fee. It's a one-off fee, and you don't actually know what the breakdown is. So to actually quantify the size of the market for self-pay is very, very difficult because uh, for private hospital groups outside, it's only the fee that they get. But if you're in London, quite often, there are all sorts of arrangements Uh, whereby one is quoting um, the entire fee. And in London, it's a much bigger market for self-pay than it is elsewhere. Now, one thing I ought to mention is that the Competition Markets Authority came in and did a review of the private healthcare market um, to ensure that it was transparent and fair some years ago. And actually, what they did do was come out and say that there were too many distortions of the market uh, uh, through private healthcare providers providing inverted commas incentives. So free consulting rooms, medical secretaries, or just general incentives for consultants to bring their business to those hospitals. As a consequence of that investigation, the CMA came out with certain orders which restricted that type of practice. So you will now see when you go on to most of the major hospital provider websites that they have to announce if they have any tie-up with any consultant. They're not allowed to provide incentives. They have to charge a fair market value for consulting rooms. If there's a piece of equipment that the consultant owns or the hospital owns, they have to declare all, all of that in order to stop um, direct incentives. And in addition to that, they came out with other uh, reporting requirements with regard to outcomes. So now there is a private healthcare information network that is collecting most of the data in relation to uh, procedures that are being done within the private sector and the outcomes. And you can see this data now publicly available. So that if you wanted to select a particular hospital based on outcomes as presented or the number of procedures done by a particular hospital or a particular consultant, you can see a lot of this data because they're trying to increase the transparency of where different procedures are done on the, on the FIN network.
0: That's really, that's really interesting. Um,
1: so I, th- I think self-pay, just before I finish that and move on to NHS in terms of how much of that is done in the private sector, mm. is it's very interesting, even in this COVID time, where in effect most of the private capacity has been given over to the NHS, it's relaxed slightly since April, May time, there are a lot of people now looking to get uh, procedures done quickly in the private sector because they can't get them done through the NHS because they've not been prioritised. So already I've been speaking to certain people that I know, you know, hernias is a classic example. People are going in and paying for themselves. And lots of people will not wait. And that, I mean, that was one of the reasons for private hospitals initially was, you know, access was you know there wasn't a big wait uh but obviously with everything that's happened with covid and even before covid the um what we call the rtt the you know referral to treatment times they used to be you know 92 percent was the target but i think the last time that was reached in the nhs was in 2016. so as those delays increase and increase the self-pay proposition becomes more attractive for certain people
0: that's interesting. I mean, before we go into the NHS, I'm I'm fascinated uh, having heard stories about you know um, you know the insurance companies uh, and their flexibility to cover particularly new treatments. And I I personally am sure with um, with Bupa because it's my understanding that they they cover pre- procedures and treatments that other insurers don't cover. Um, but I, although I don't expect you to comment specifically about the the, the individual insurance companies, because I know you're still very close and still very involved in, you know, working in the private sector and, and certainly I know Bruce, you do a lot of interim management in private hospital groups in, in, in the country, but um, are, are some of them easier to deal with in terms of getting coverage than others, in terms of the processes for getting um, agreements that they'll cover treatments or the general mindset of those insurers, which, you know, are they... Are so I they think
1: to answer that question without shooting myself in the foot? The answer is yes. Right. I think um, each of the insurers has a very clear sort of what I would call rules of engagement or healthcare services agreement with the providers. Yeah. I think what confuses things is that there's been a lot of integration of providers, acquisitions, disposals. There's been a lot of different membership propositions to sell more schemes those schemes can be corporate schemes where that's a kind of bundling of the average cost for a particular bank or whoever the corporate is you know we will provide you with this but there are all sorts of different propositions that have been sold to members and actually it's very difficult and complicated for you to work out uh, exactly what your scheme is. And therefore, quite often I hear um, patients saying to me, well, I wasn't aware that that was my excess, or I wasn't aware that that was an outpatient charge, I wasn't aware that my pathology charges weren't included, or I wasn't aware, uh, and all of these things. And it's very interesting who the contract is with. So some of the big organi- of the organi- insurance companies have set up very, very good um, almost pre-authorization networks where you can find out pretty quickly what you're covered for and what you're not covered for, and also so can the providers. Um, But there are also other sorts of schemes which are in the small print, so which help reduce the claims exposure for the insurers. So some organizations have come up with, Uh, policies which say if you go within the nhs and you have been diagnosed with cancer this will be your premium because they know that you will be treated within the nhs and the two-week pathway within the nhs a lot of people get picked up in that pathway initially anyhow i think i think the insurers are really looking to also help introduce you know the nhs long-term plan with integrated care pathways so they're not just looking at the procedure they're really interested in you know um, can you do more for the patient to give a better outcome so they get value for money and that's right the way from pre-assessment to follow-up to rehab and i think we'll see slightly different models of uh, insurance and what is covered Um, and then of course the corporates they have to look at the costs. And I, I think is a very interesting area, the whole area of sickness absence and the cost of sickness absence in big organisations relative to the premium that is being paid by that organisation. And it surprised me to some extent that the government aren't looking at some sort of incentive in relation to national insurance contributions for corporates that have decided they're going to provide private medical insurance. For their employees, uh, particularly at this time, you know. So I think that might be another yeah. interesting
0: area. It's uh, it's it's there's a lot more to this than uh, I know. We're we're trying to focus on accelerating medtech sales, but understanding the structures and complexities of these groups is 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 sounds to me like quite a minefield um, with different payers and providers. But overall, um, it's been very helpful to 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 learn. And and uh, as I say, uh, any of you interested in in finding out about coverage and getting your product through into the um, private insured sector, um, please as I say reach out i 'll give you some details at the end of this, but what I want to touch on now um, we 've talked about self pay and insured pay the groups, the payers and providers and 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 the processes of getting technologies um, recommended on a local private hospital by pro- private hospital basis or on a national group basis which is, I know we've touched on that, clearly very complex. Um, but uh, I think one thing that we, we were talking before the webinar, uh, Bruce and I, about the uh, the whole aspect of um, how the private sector has stepped in to support the NHS in, in these difficult sort of COVID times and um, and I, I guess, uh, you know, I wanted to really touch on what was going on before COVID and uh, with the private sector and now what's happening now. And I think we need to divide it because, you know, things have changed rapidly. Whether they'll go back to what happened before, we 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 hope so, I guess. But so, so um, one thing that many people don't know is that under uh, your rights, if you want to have your um, uh, benign prostatic hyperplasia sorted out in a great hospital in let's say North Hampshire Hospital in Basingstoke you could actually ask your GP to be referred there and and you could ask your GP to refer you to a particular doctor in that hospital as part of um, what's known as choose and book. Am I right Bruce? That's correct. nodding your head here. Uh, So so, you know patients, NHS patients have the ability to be treated wherever they like under this um, thing that I think David Cameron uh, Conservative uh, Prime Minister brought in a few years ago. Um, so this is pre-COVID, and and I guess that may or may not be the case. I'll get uh, Bruce to confirm that. But so so clearly the these private hospitals, and I only we touched on the, the orthopaedic thing. Um, these private hospitals do a lot of NHS contracted work under um, a thing called AQP. And I don't know if you could just describe the structure of the um, the way that works with the. I guess it's the CCGs, the Clin- Regional yep. Clinical Commissioning Groups, the payers, as we'll just call them, for pl- simple language, um, contracting work um, with the private sector uh, uh, groups on a national basis. Um, how does that work then, Bruce? Okay. Uh, it's going to be a long answer, isn't it? The, uh, well,
1: <laughs> AQP, or it used to be AWP, any willing provider, but AQP uh, is any qualified provider provider. Um, And the purpose of that was uh, to introduce choice and uh, the opportunity for patients in the NHS to go to their GPs and then when they get referred, they would have a choice of the hospital that they could have that service delivered from. And in making that choice, there was no bias in relation to cost because the cost to the taxpayer was the same wherever it was delivered from. And in order to be considered as any qualified provider, you had to sign up to what was called the standard acute contract, which all of the big trusts also had to sign up to. Uh, So in effect, the commissioners, uh, not national commissioners, but the local commissioners, and they all changed over the years to different commissioning groups, um, were signing up contracts with the private sector and not centrally, this was all done locally, um, to deliver certain services with exactly the same requirements in terms of um, uh, referral to treatment times, exactly the same penalties, exactly the same incentives in terms of quality, sequins, for for everything, uh, and exactly the same tariff. So when... The trusts all went to HRG4 plus tariffs. So did the private sector. And exactly the same, uh, everything really, reporting requirements, inspection, quality, governance uh, was required. And if you could um, sign up to the particulars of that standard acute contract and deliver against it, that became a very important source of revenue. And in fact, the NHS is the second largest funding source for the private sector wow. um, prior to COVID. Uh, admittedly, nothing like, you know, uh, what we've talked about in PMI, but it's certainly bigger than um, self-pay. Right. Um, and uh, the appetite for hospital groups to take up that contract varied According to where you were, according to your uh, capacity and also utilization of that capacity, and at the private sector prior to COVID, in many hospitals the utilization of bed capacity at night was very very low. I mean, you know, it could be even down at thirty or forty percent for inpatients because a lot of work had moved to day case, but a lot of stuff didn't. Uh, justify inpatient and a lot of the care pathways and a lot of the costings and a lot of the margins that were being made had all been predicated on inpatients years and years ago. So with a very high fixed cost base and a very high, you know, property and a very high capital cost base, you know, and and typically staff are, are just like in the NHS, the big fixed cost base in the private sector, Putting more capacity, you know, demand through uh, an underutilized capacity should help improve the bottom line. And um, so the private sector looked at that and effectively the way that worked was that you would agree prior to the start of the financial year what you would uh, be delivering in total volume so that the commissioners understood what the financial cap was in their particular commissioning group. And they could say, well, we're going to give 90% of that to the trust and we might give 10% to the private sector. Wow! And then you'd have to deliver against that. And if you did too much, then they might come in and question you as to why you were delivering too much. Uh, and used to, that term used to be referred to as overheating. And if you did too little, um, that was another issue. Or if you had all sorts of problems with delivering the service that you'd promised, you got all sorts of problems. And the problem with this at the time was that you have to have a very clear engagement strategy with your consultants. Because remember what I said, the consultants in most hospitals are not employed. They are actually working as independent, self-employed individuals, and they're working within the NHS. And the only time they can deliver for you uh, is that they have to offer the outpatient slots for people in those service lines that you're going to offer on the web so that they can be booked to the GP practice now what's really interesting is very very few people in the UK for a long time even knew that this existed and even now i would say when i say to people oh you're using you're you're paying for your hip yourself have you has your gp offered you uh, a referral through Choose and Book or FCN, Free Choice Network, they go, well, what's that? What's that? You know. it's incredible. And, and so it is quite incredible. And in the in the first instance, you couldn't select your hospital or your consultant. But actually, when you go and see the GP, the referrer, they will have an electronic base there, which shows all of the slots that are being offered all over the UK within the NHS. And you could go and choose to have your hip replaced in Yorkshire if you wanted to, if you know, if, if that's where you wanted to go. Bit of a drive. Yeah. From but, yeah.
0: I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I've looked uh, and, uh, you know, we work closely looking at the what's known as the standard contract, which is the agreement between the payer, the CCG, and the provider. And Section 2.1.6 talks about the requirement to be... Um, to have regard to Nice guidance and 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 be compliant against Nice technology appraisals, so it's very interesting that those companies that have gone through the Nice processes uh, and recommendations, the ones that we work very closely with over the years, um, have the um, added benefit of that being written into the contracts within the private hospital groups as well, which would obviously help to drive adoption of those tech into the private sector um yeah, yeah and i think that would probably make any decision making in the mac uh medical advisory committees within the hospitals simpler if they have the opportunity to use technologies um that or or, or offered technologies that have gone through the, the, the nice the rigorous processes of nice as well so i guess it's all supporting that um i mean i'm, I'm just really interested in um C- can i just add one yeah. thing which i'm sure you just
1: reminded me is that yeah when the individual independent providers list the DOS slots, so the directory of service offerings, it amazes me how poorly the definition of what they're offering is listed. So if it's a new technology, if you put the name of the new technology rather than the general, sort of general surgery or whatever, then when people are looking for that within the directory of service, immediately that comes up and then that means that you'll go to that particular hospital because they've, and this is very similar to, you know, if you go to the consultant's finder and you have a piece of new technology, if that consultant happens to be a specialist in a particular discipline and he's being trained or she's being trained in whatever that new technology is, if you don't name the technology in that person's profile, when somebody searches for it, you don't find it. When the insurers search for it, they don't find it. There's an enormous marketing opportunity, coming back to the topic of this um, webinar, as in terms of accelerating people's ability to see technologies which have enhanced patient pathways. But a lot of people haven't bothered to put that language in their profile, and DOS slot optimization within the private sector is an absolutely important area to make sure that new technologies get adopted more rapidly.
0: Right. So it's within uh, it's within the doctor's interest, I guess, to say that they're offering, let's say, a new treatment. Um. Uh. Yeah, for example, um, to talk about Resin for for stimulation for, um, you know, for benign prostatic hyperplasia. It's within the doctor's, um, uh. Uh, I, I guess it's, so a, it's actually, actually within the actually provider's
1: gift to set, set to up set th- right. what there are certain words that are allowed yeah and then you you, you submit those and then they go into the DOS slot and it, right. the, the whole process of uh, efficiency of DOS slot optimization is a skill in itself but it right. makes a massive difference if you look at it as a a bit like you would look at your website as an opportunity for people yeah. to maximize uh, uh, you know, your website access and how yeah. many people land on it?
0: So, I mean, it's within some of the groups, so privately and NHS, some of these private hospital groups to offer new treatments in in front of, let's say in front of NHS uh, hospitals to offer the opportunity for patients to have treatments that are not available in the NHS, that are available self pay uh instead i guess i mean it's, uh, it's
1: although it's... you still have to go through the safety yeah in yeah
0: so you would so
1: like with um uh, Resim, yeah you know i had to do the due diligence on that because it wasn't being used widely but we did find that it had been used in other countries we did look at the outcomes we did look at all of that so all that got presented to the medical advisory committee there was a um, urologist on the committee not the individual who was trying to sponsor it because that that would have been a conflict of interest yeah. but another individual and so we looked at all of that and came up with the conclusion yes we are prepared to try this even prior to nice approval
0: yeah which is which is very encouraging for for many companies out there with new technologies that uh, may find this as a, an alternative uh, mechanism of getting some early, uh, you know, success and sales and, and traction into uh, what is a, a bigger um, op- you know, bigger market. So um, I know we've got sort of a few minutes left here. I just want to touch on where we are now with the private sector, because we've got uh, all sorts of stuff going on with COVID and patients being treated in the private sector at the moment, uh, because of, I mean, I'd love to understand, you know, five minutes on what's happening with COVID and NHS patients and private and, and you know, what's where a patients going and who's doing what these days? So
1: um, I'm not completely up to date on it, but in effect, the private sector entered a block contract to support the NHS in delivering sufficient capacity mm. to help in circumstances where the NHS were going to get overloaded. And um, that block contract uh, was based on... Uh, very strict rules around particularly infection control processes and also categorization of patients in terms of the risk or whether COVID patients, X, Y and Z. So a lot of the capacity for a long time was completely taken, not by all private sector. There are a few that decided not to go into it, but very, very few. Most of them looked at it as... Okay, let's support the NHS. Uh, and that was effectively a block contract. So, and the way that the that's why I say the market is very distorted now because looking at uh, what somebody might be being remunerated for, it isn't done by payment by results, it isn't done by HRG code, it's a block contract. A block contract means you will just deliver whatever we give you. So, for the first few months, I think it my view, and this may be wrong, is that to operationalise that in an effective manner was quite difficult because the government were trying to establish Nightingale hospitals, putting in private sector capacity, looking at trusts, changing the rules about discharge out of trusts, looking at how to integrate social care so that people could go into the social care and you could discharge them at a different time than previously. So a lot of private hospitals ended up doing the critical stuff, the oncology, the trauma, and that sort of stuff. And now, from what I hear, and it's changing all the time, there's a new roll-on contract where private sector are still delivering around about 75% of their capacity. Now, what does that really mean? Is that if you've got four operating theatres, is that three three operating theatres dedicated to NHS? You know, is it... Is it what is it in terms of the capacity and who is doing the prioritisation of the procedures that will end up as the 25% um, self-pay or, 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 or insured uh, separate procedures. And so it's still quite confusing in terms of, um, A, how the private providers are going to get the return that they would normally be looking for when actually the mechanism for financing private hospitals has been on a transparent cost basis the issues are still there with regard to staffing although i have to say i think there's been a lot of learnings between the private sector and the nhs and a lot of opportunities have come out in terms of training almost like a secondment, really, where people working in the private sector have been seconded into the NHS and vice versa. The whole governance of the trusts versus the private sector and and, and how that looks going forward, I think is going to be very interesting. And I think, you know, depending on what the next variation to this contract will be, there will be... uh, financially astute people who are saying yes we will support the government we will support it also depends on is there going to be a second wave you know of course we need to support um, saving people's lives from a private sector perspective but there will be just like other businesses certain hospitals who are thinking can i survive on a cost only reimbursement platform and therefore, I think what that might create is an analysis of what I would call service line profitability. But I have to say, with all of that, this creates massive opportunities for new innovations in terms of you know, even the whole development of remote consulting from GP practices. All of the infection control IPC measures that have had to be put in So we hear a lot of negative stories in the press about PPE, but actually there's been a lot of good stuff developed. Uh, And getting some of these things in to support efficiency in the process is very, very important because there's no doubt that the waiting list is going up and up and up. And therefore, the government and all of us need to be developing new, service lines, new diagnostics, new approaches to help reduce those waiting lists and reduce the costs associated with reducing them.
0: Uh, I think that's that's an incredible uh, uh, finishing line, really, Bruce, and it's been um, great having this insight with you today um, on this webinar. I just wanted to thank people for for listening. I just wanted to say, um, you know, Bruce is... is He does consultancy work with us and is able uh, to to support anybody out there interested in entering or considering entering this um, area of private uh, self pay and NHS contracted work into the private hospitals of which we, we all know there's lots of them um, the sort of things we do offer you advice on uh, sort of reimbursement um, and coding so how how are these treatments coded in the um, Private hospital uh, we can help with the development of business plans and dossiers writing to 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 be used with the key stakeholders in the private sector and I know that Bruce has been very helpful in working with some of our clients in in getting them through and in front of some of the insurance companies as well as the as the main head groups of of the private hospital groups as well. so uh, we're here to help. Um, just wanted to again thank Bruce thank you uh, out there for listening. Uh, to the webinar and, um, yeah, uh, appreciate, um, being on today and, uh, coming and join us on another webinar soon. Thank you.